Hi, this is Pastor Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for joining our podcast. We're walking through the book of Luke, thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, to see the world the way he does, and to integrate his patterns into our life. I hope you enjoyed the sermon today. I also want to point you to the description section where you can find the church's website. We would love for you to visit our church and consider investing in our ministry. There's two other links. One is a podcast I do with a therapist at Renew Church, and we kick around issues like dating, mental health, and friendships. And lastly, there's a children's book series and a journal that I wrote with my wife and my mentor, and we'd love for you to look at those resources as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renew Church family, and I hope that you enjoyed the sermon today. God bless. All right. Good morning, Renew Church. How are you this morning? So good to see you. How many of you are excited about the Super Bowl? You guys are going to go watch it. Yay. Our church is not a Super Bowl church. I, I can... I can attest to that. I love football. I love, you know, watching the Super Bowl. But there's no Super Bowl parties to go to. At least nobody tells me, right, <laughs> if there's any Super Bowl parties. But I think it's like when I talk to my friends, they're like, eh, we might watch it at home, you know. But, uh, man, it's so weird. But you know what? That's cool. Our church is just not a football church, right? So that's really good. All right, good morning. It's so good to see you. I know it's so random, right, that I talk. But I have to fill in because... You know, if I get into the thing right now, you won't even know what I'm talking about. So I had to kind of, uh, uh, kind of do filler a little bit. But you know, it's so good to see you this morning. Uh, We are continuing our four-part series on the gospel, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Uh, If you remember, I told you my dad's passion is acupuncture, and uh, he made me pinky promise. I made you guys pinky promise with me, and he talked about how you need to let you know, the, the acupuncture, you know, sessions work for maybe four weeks, five weeks, and then you'll see it take its effect. And so I'm hoping that the gospel is taking its effect on you. And that's so important because I am most passionate about the gospel. It's the foundation for a Christian life. And so we started off by talking about sin. Can we put the next slide up? And we said that God is angry with sin. Because he's a perfectly just God. And he has a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it. And that he will judge humanity from the greatest atrocity to the smallest motive. Uh, it, we looked in Romans 1 that God is, uh, wrath is against all godlessness and wickedness. And we said that God is a perfect accountant who will add every sin up in your life. God is that perfect prosecutor who will build an airtight case against you. That God is that perfect judge who will punish every sin that you've ever committed. Now, when we talked about that, it was traumatic, wasn't it? It was horrific. This is bad news. But next, we continued talking about sacrifice. And we said that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And that while we were sinners, God sent his gift of righteousness, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for our sins. And we said last week that the cross is God's gracious gift to us because on the cross, God's holiness was satisfied. We called that propitiation, and we studied that theological term. That on the cross, our sins were transferred to him, and we called that expiation. Do you remember the two goats, pro and ex, right? 
And we talked about uh, how on Yom Kippur, those two goats uh, were the propitiation and expiation of God. We said in Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified through his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? And that was good news, wasn't it? Now, this begs the question, how? How do we access the good news into our bad news? How do we appropriate God's sacrifice into our sinful condition? How do we apply propitiation and expiation into our sinful lives? Well, this morning, we want to look at the question of how. And we want to study the subject of salvation. You know, in God's plan, humanity's sin leads to God's sacrifice, which leads to our salvation. And that's the effect of the gospel. The good news just keeps getting better and better and better. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So let's look at the story a story in the Bible of a man who was given the answer to the how question. How do we access? How do we apply? How do we appropriate the good news into our lives? In John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and if you have your devices, you can take those out. As a matter of fact, it may help. I'll have the verses uh, up, but as we look at these things, you might want to look at your devices and go back and forth because we're going to cover a lot this morning. And this is a story of Nicodemus' dialogue with Jesus. It's one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. So let's look in John chapter 3. I'll have it up here, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one, can see, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Now, I want us to stop right there. Now, this man, Nicodemus, comes to talk to Jesus at night. Why does he do that? Well, number one, because of his position. Verse one says that he was a Pharisee. Now, they were the most popular leaders of religion in Israel. We've talked extensively in our gospel studies on the Pharisees. So I don't want to uh, share with you too much that you've already heard, other than the fact that they were the popular teachers. They were the people's leaders. Everyday Jewish men and women followed them for religious guidance. And they numbered around 6,000. So if you can imagine in all of Israel, it was 6,000. It was a small group of these Pharisees. This meant that Nicodemus was, a highly, was highly influential religiously. 
Now, in verse 1 again, it says that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, this refers to the Sanhedrin. This was the Supreme Court of Israel. It was made up of 71 leaders who were justices, basically, who, who, uh, ad, uh, who adjudicated excuse me, legal matters in Israel. These were the best of the best from among all the groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes. These were the very best. So Nicodemus was also highly influential politically. Now, verse 10 says that he was Israel's teacher. Now, be careful not to skip over this fact. In the original language, Jesus is referring to him as the teacher in Israel. The definite article means that Nicodemus was renowned in Israel as the preeminent teacher of scripture. This was no ordinary teacher. He was famous for being a master scholar and instructor of God's word for the nation. And so Nicodemus was a highly influential celebrity. So Nicodemus came at night in secrecy because he had a lot to lose. Uh, he's not comfortable with Jesus yet. He doesn't know him. And so because of his incredible influence religiously, politically, socially, he wants to meet him at night to clear up any confusion about him. So he comes to Jesus at night because of his position and also because of his curiosity, his insatiable curiosity. Nicodemus wants to spend time talking to Jesus one-on-one -on -one where they would be undisturbed and that would be at night. Now, why does he do this? Why would a highly influential man like Nicodemus search out Jesus? Think about it. He is one of 6,000 Pharisees. He is one of 71 rulers. He is one of one, the preeminent teacher in Israel. This is the Time Magazine person of the year type, right? This is the who's who of Israel type. This is the most interesting man in the world type of person. If anything, he's the kind of person that people stand in line to seek an audience with. Why is he troubling himself to seek out Jesus to meet with him? Well, it's because Nicodemus is curious if Jesus is the Messiah. You see, in the context, Jesus is performing divine miracles that the prophets foretold would be a sign of Messiah's ministry. In chapter two, the chapter right before it, the multitudes were seeing these signs and they were saying, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. He has to be. And so Nicodemus, curious as he, as he was, in verse 2 says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. See, Nicodemus is wondering, could this be the Messiah that all the prophets foretold would come and usher in the kingdom of God? You see, this is what Nicodemus has dreamed of all his life. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees prayed for the kingdom of God to come, to usher in, the, in righteousness in an unrighteous world. He was one of those rulers. He was a ruler. And the rulers waited for the kingdom of God where God would perfectly reign in justice. He was a teacher. And like all those teachers, they taught the Jews that the scripture foretold that the kingdom of God would be established eternally. And so the coming of the kingdom of God was Nicodemus' greatest desire. But before he could say anything further, 
Jesus responds with something that must have stopped him in his tracks. Now, before we go on uh, and continue with the story, we have to remember that we are here to answer the how question. How do we access? How do we apply? How do we appropriate salvation in our lives? How do we get salvation, okay? So first, let's define how it is not received, okay? Because we can learn a lot about something by defining what it is not. So if you're taking notes, write this down and put up the next point, would you? That salvation is not acquired through affiliation, okay? Write that down. Salvation is not acquired through affiliation. Let's continue with the story in verse 3. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now imagine saying this to someone who has lived his whole life thinking and dreaming, even obsessing about the kingdom of God, only to hear someone say that he will not even see it unless he's born again. Let's look at Nicodemus' response. <clears throat> he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus' question contains sarcasm. Can you see it? He is completely flabbergasted by what Jesus has just said. He is utterly surprised and shocked. You see, Nicodemus would have assumed that his entrance into the kingdom of God was guaranteed based on his affiliation with the Jewish nation. Let me say that again. Nicodemus would have thought, I am guaranteed the kingdom of God because of my affiliation with the Jewish nation. Now, what do I mean? Well, he was born a Jew. His DNA was Jewish. His parents, his grandparents, his great-grandparents, his great-great-grandparents, all the way down the line, were all descendants of Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. He was circumcised. For a male Jew, that means that he wore on his body the mark of God's covenant with the Jews. He was a justice of the Sanhedrin of Israel, always working hard to uphold the Jewish laws and institutions. Nicodemus was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As a matter of fact, the Jewish religious system taught that all ethnic Jews were assured the kingdom of God unless they were guilty of apostasy. That means turning their back on God. And by the way, that term reborn that Jesus is using was also familiar with first century Jews. <clears throat> That's what they called a Gentile who left their pagan religion and converted to Judaism. The Jewish sages said that those Gentiles who left their paganism and proselytized into Judaism are like newborn babies reborn into truth. And so you could see why Nicodemus is flabbergasted. Jesus isn't saying this to a pagan outsider. He's addressing a Jew, a ruler of the Jews, that he must be born again. I'm sure Nicodemus thought, this is crazy, right? This is turned upside down. I'm not a pagan Gentile. I'm not outside the covenant community. I'm a child of Abraham. I am already born into the kingdom of God. Now, why would I need to be born a second time from my mother? You know what Nicodemus was doing? His confidence was his affiliation with the Jewish nation, his genetics, his background, his upbringing, his credentials. You know, uh, in my life, I've shared the gospel numerous times, countless times, uh, on, in different places. <clears throat> and many times what I'll do 
is I'll ask people how they know that they'll get into heaven. And you know what the answer many times is? It's affiliation. They'll say things like, I grew up a Christian. I've been in a Baptist church all my life. Or my parents were devout Christians. They were deacons and founders of a church. Or I went to Christian school K through 12. Or I went to Christian college. I went to chapels. Or I was baptized at Pentecostal. So-and-so famous pastor baptized me. Or I was confirmed a Catholic. I was an altar boy when I was little. Or I served regularly at this particular rescue mission. Or I give uh, to these particular charities. Or I'm an elder in the Presbyterian church. Or even I'm a pastor in the Methodist church. There are many today like Nicodemus who place confidence in their salvation by their affiliations. But that is not how you obtain salvation. Jesus makes it clear in verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So the second point we want to look at, would you put it up please? Is salvation is accomplished through regeneration. Okay? Now, what is regeneration? It's a big word. It's a theological term that means you are given new life. That the life of God has come into your life and has transformed you spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that in regeneration, you are a new creation spiritually. Right? And here, Jesus uses the analogy of birth to illustrate regeneration. He says, you were born physically... But now you must be born spiritually. You need a new life. Verse 5. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Now, what does that term water mean? Now, there are so many crazy ideas as to what that means. You know, again, sharing the gospel. Not too long ago, I was sharing on the campus of Cal State Fullerton. And a Christian cult member, okay, a, a cultist, uh, a Christian cultist, actually began talking to me about faith. And we got to the point where that person shared with me that baptism is required for salvation. And they used this very verse to prove the point, okay? Uh, verse 5, you know, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water. And that person was telling me that water meant baptism, and the spirit. But is that what this verse is saying? Is the verse talking about baptismal regeneration? Now this is important, okay? Because we need to interpret the passage. What is the most important rule when we interpret the Bible? It is context. Okay, that one word. Context is the most important. You've heard that in real estate the most important rule is what? Location. Location, location, location. Well, in the Bible, when we interpret it, it's always about context, context, context. So what is the context of this passage? Let me, uh, let me actually bring you through these verses sequentially so that you understand the context. Verse 3, Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, how can I enter my mom's womb and be born again? Right? So Jesus is talking about spiritual birth. Nicodemus misunderstands that it's physical birth. Then Jesus clarifies it now in verse 5. He says, you need to be born of water and the spirit. 
Okay? And then he emphasizes it further and he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So do you see in the context? He's saying you need to be born physically, but you also need to be born spiritually in order to be born again. Okay? And you might say, well, I'm not sure about that, right? I, you know, I'm still iffy. But just in case you need some outside proof, the ancient Greeks referred to physical birth as being born of water. And we all know why that is, right? When the amniotic fluid of a woman bursts open and water drains out, we know that the baby is coming, right? So when Kevin Leong texts me, Kim's water broke, I know exactly what that means. Kaya is coming, right? It's time. And so Jesus is clearly telling Nicodemus that what he needs is not another physical birth, being born of water. He's already had that. What he needs is spiritual birth. He, he needs regeneration. And Jesus used the analogy of birth to explain regeneration. You were born physically, but that's not enough. You must be born spiritually. There must be a new life transformation. Amen? Now, verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. Now, why would Jesus say this? It's because Nicodemus is flabbergasted. He is intensely surprised. To him, this doesn't make sense. Remember, Nicodemus was looking at salvation from the physical. He's a Jew. He's circumcised. He's a Pharisee. He follows the Mosaic laws. He follows the traditions. He does good things. He believes his physical affiliations will save him. Verse 8, what does Jesus say? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone born in the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus that salvation is not physical, it is spiritual. Get that. It's not physical, but it's spiritual. To look at salvation from the spiritual. I want you to notice the word for wind and the word for spirit is the same Greek word, pneuma. So here in verse 8, it's a play on words. Just like you can't see the wind, it's invisible, so it is that you can't see the spiritual birth because it's supernatural, because it's divine. In verse 9, this is, this is a kicker, okay? How can these things be, Nicodemus asked. Are you Israel's teacher, Jesus uh, said, and you do not understand this? It looks like Jesus is what? He's chiding Nicodemus, right? He's scolding him. Now, why would Jesus chide Nicodemus? You might feel bad for old Nick and say, come on, that's so mean, Jesus. You know, it's not fair to give him new truth and then rebuke him because he doesn't understand it or he's surprised by it. Why would you do that to a person, right? And that begs the question, let's think about it. Why would Jesus scold him for not knowing something new that he didn't know before? And here's my point. It's because it is not new. It is not new. The truth of regeneration was found in the Old Testament. And the renowned, skilled teacher like Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this. He would have taught this. Let me give you two. There's, there's many more, but let me give you two of these Old Testament passages, okay? The first one, let's put it up, is found in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah 31, okay? And it says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. What was that old covenant? It was the Mosaic covenant. It was the Ten Commandments. It was all the laws and regulations and rules. They broke those covenants. They couldn't keep those covenants, right? Now look, he says, this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In the Old Testament, this is a prophecy concerning regeneration. That the new covenant will come and transform your old hearts and your old minds. Right? The new covenant will change you into a new creation where you won't have to have people telling you, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because in your heart you will already know him. Amen? You will know him from the inside of your soul. Let's look at another one. Okay? Here's the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, it says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And I will save you from all your uncleanness. Again, it's a picture of regeneration. Or it's, it's a Old Testament prophecy concerning regeneration. That God will take out your old heart of stone and he'll replace it with a new heart. He will put his spirit within you and creating you that new spirit so that you will follow him. So that no one has to tell you, follow him, follow him, follow him. That you will follow him and move from the inside of your soul. Can I get an amen? Oh, this is beautiful stuff. You see, Nicodemus has been teaching this all his life. And yet, he's not making the connection. And that's why Jesus says, hey, are you surprised by this? Let me give you the perfect picture of regeneration. You know, last week I gave it to the second, uh, the second uh, uh, group, but I didn't give it to you guys, so I feel comfortable giving it to you, okay? This is beautiful. It's one of my favorite illustrations. I tweaked it quite a bit to make it into what I wanted, but this is how it goes. You are in the office of Dr. Law, okay? Sounds like a Chinese doctor, doesn't it? Dr. Law. He is Moses D. Law the founder of the Mosaic Covenant Medical Center, okay? And you come to him and you say, Dr. Law, I don't know what's wrong with me. This is serious. And he asks, what's wrong? He says, well, my eyes are infected with lust and pornography. I want to look so badly. And my ears love to listen to gossip and grumbling and all the trashy stuff. And my mouth curses and cuts down and slanders and it's always causing dissension. And my mind is always thinking of evil thoughts and wrong things. It's so manipulative. And my hands are quick to do the wrong things. And my feet rush to all the wrong places. So Dr. Law says, your diagnosis is that you have a bad heart. 
The technical term is stone heart. And it's perverse, and it's diseased, and it's toxic. And by the way, all your problems that you just mentioned are symptoms of a root cause. You have a stone heart. And the prognosis is, if left untreated, this heart will lead you to death. And so Dr. Law states, you need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. And you say, well, this is serious. And you say, well, then Dr. Law, do it. Please save me. Give me a new heart. You know what Dr. Law says? He says, I can't do it. I'm not capable. There's nothing I can do to save you. But before he could finish the sentence, you run in your desperation to find help. So you run to alternative medicine. You go to the doctor of religion. This is corny, isn't it? Or the doctor of philosophy. Or the doctor of psychology. Or the doctor of self-help. And they can only prescribe you superficial remedies that can't change your core problem, that you need a new heart. You have a bad heart. And so, desperate, you run back to Dr. Law. And you said, is there anything that you can do to save me? And you know what Dr. Law says? He says, you left before I could finish talking with you. There's nothing that I, Dr. Law, can do to save you. But the good news is, I work for the great physician. And he is the perfect cardiologist. We call him Dr. Grace. He's the only one who can create and transplant a new heart. And you know what? He's 100% successful. You see, the law can't make you right with God. The law can never save anyone. The law is only a mirror to show you what you look like, that you're fallen and you're broken and you're sinful. So the law cannot remedy the situation. It only reveals the present situation. And so Dr. Law says, I need to take you to Dr. Grace. His name is Jesus, the Christ. And he's already paid the price for your procedure. He can do it absolutely free. You can do the transplant now. The only question is, what are you going to do with this offer of regeneration? Isn't that an awesome illustration? Yeah, I tweaked it and made it really cool myself, I know. All right, so the third point, and that's where we are, right? What are you going to do with this offer of a heart transplant? Verse 3, salvation is access through faith. You might say, Pastor Dave, you said that we're here to answer the how question in the gospel, so how do I receive regeneration? How do I obtain salvation? How do I become born again? How do I get this new heart that you're talking about? Well, let's continue in verse 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses, by the way, verse 11 through 13, I don't have time to go through that, so we're going to skip that, okay? Uh, and we're just going to go to 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus draws on the story from the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. And it's found in Numbers chapter 21. It records an event uh, during Israel's wilderness wanderings. Okay? And here's the event. The Israelites grumbled against the Lord and they rebelled against him. And so God punished them by sending venomous snakes into their camp. Now this was the curse of death because these serpents bit the people and many of them began to die. The Israelites repented and asked God to save them. <clears throat> but listen, instead of just removing the snakes, God has a weird solution for his people. Okay, uh, To stop the curse that brings death, God tells Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze and to place it on a high pole. 
And then God instructs Moses to place it in the middle of the camp, high and lifted up for everyone to see. And if the person looked at the bronze snake on the pole, they would be healed even though they were bitten. But if that person was bitten and would not look at what uh, that uh, bronze snake on a pole, they perished. So those who believed in God's way for salvation from the curse of judgment would be saved, okay? Jesus tells Nicodemus that this story was a messianic picture of what he would do. The term son of man was a title that the prophets used for a Messiah, right? And here's, here's what's important. The snake on a pole foreshadowed Jesus' work on the cross. That's what he's saying in verse 14 and 15, okay? In the Bible, the serpent was a symbol of the curse of sin. Hanging on a pole or a tree or anything like that meant that that person was accursed. So Jesus on the cross would have been the curse of sin. He would have been accursed with the sin of the world. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? In antiquity, the metal bronze was a symbol of judgment, okay? And we see, we see a lot of uh, illustrations for that. So God's wrath and judgment would be poured out on Jesus at the cross. What Jesus was, or was saying, not even implying, but saying, is that he is God's way for salvation. And then Nicodemus gives God's plan, okay? Verse 16 and 17. You know this. This is one of the greatest, uh, most famous passages in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, this is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's the most beautiful story of God's love to all of humanity. As a matter of fact, you could build a whole sermon on verse 16 and 17. I want us to go back to the main point of what we're talking about. The word believe means to place your faith in Jesus as God's plan for your salvation. That's what John is talking about in his gospel. When you believe, what you're doing is you're looking to God. You're looking to God's way of salvation, and then God can give you that new birth where you are born from above. That God can make you a new creation. That God can take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of, uh, a heart of flesh that follows him. You see, that is the supernatural heart transplant that God does. And then in verse 18, this is where I close. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Let's go back to the story of the snake on the pole. You know, there are some people who chose not to look. I'm sure they said things like, this is really stupid. This way just sounds ridiculous. It has no scientific bearing on anything. Doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to do it. Or they said, this can't be the only way. I mean, this might be a way, but you know what? I'm going to choose to find a doctor. I'm going to choose whatever medicine is available. And they refused. And the Bible says, because they refused, they perished. You know what that's a symbol of or a sign of? Of unbelief. Of saying, I refuse to accept that way. So that when you choose unbelief, refusing to accept God's way of salvation, you end up, verse 18, condemning yourself. See, no one has to be under the wrath of God. 
No one has to be judged for sin. No one has to perish. It's a choice that you make. It's all about your choice to believe. You know the good news is that Nicodemus was born again. We see later in John's gospel and even in history uh, proof of that. But I want to ask, what about you today? Are you born again? Will you choose to believe? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment. And I want to ask in the quietness of your heart with no one looking, if you have come to a place where you have believed on Jesus the Messiah, where you have believed in God's way of salvation, meaning that you've placed your faith and trust in his propitiation and expiation for your life. Or let me ask this, are you confident in your affiliations? Are you confident in something outward? And you might say today, you know, I need, I need that spiritual birth. I need to be born again. If you have that and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, no one else is looking, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And you know what? I'm not going to have a uh, service where you come forward. won't embarrass you in any way. I just want to know so I can pray for you. Is there anybody here like that? Would you raise up your hand that you have never received God's gift of eternal life. Thank you. Father, we thank you for your word. It starts off bad news, but then the gospel keeps getting better and better. And we pray that the gospel would continually be the thing that motivates us and moves us forward as Christians. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're really grateful that you'd spend time listening to the sermon series. And we also wanted to point you to a few other resources. My wife and I wrote a children's book collection, helping kids bridge their faith with God's calling in their life as a businessman, as a doctor or nurse, and as a creative. Secondly, we wrote an adulting journal, which helps young adults think through this transition into adulthood, whether it's transitions in friendship, family, faith, or calling. And lastly, I want to point to a podcast that myself and another church member, Roy Kim, who's a therapist, co-hosts together. It's called The Same Boat. We talk about relationships. We just finished um, a series on dating. We think back to an English ministry church and we just tackle all kinds of topics that are relevant to our life. I hope that uh, those resources enrich your life as well. And lastly, if you're looking to partner with us on our website, we have a give section. You could give to our general fund and continue to serve our church through, um, through partnering with us financially. But if you scroll down, we have quite a few local missionaries that have called Renew Home. If you read their bio, there's also a section to give to each one of our local missionaries. We hope that all of them would be fully funded going into this year. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, hope to, hear, hope to uh, have you join us again.